Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli with RestaurantOwner.com. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth, the magazine of RestaurantOwner.com. And Barry and I are really pleased to talk with one of our favorite RestaurantOwner.com members all the way from the UK. He's joining us, Pete Frazier from Cornwall, England, with multiple locations of Cornish Fish and Chips. So we're going to have a lot of fun. You're, you stayed up nine hours, I guess, later than we are, so you can have this conversation. Welcome hey. to the show, Pete. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. It was uh, it was a lovely invitation to receive. So, uh, yes. Well, Pete, we're very happy to talk to you, and it's nice to speak to someone outside our borders in the UK. Our readers and our members are and listeners are always interested on how our guests wound up in the hospitality and the restaurant industry, what the journey was. And I'm hoping you could uh, maybe share that with us. Okay. I'm 63 now. And my restaurant career started when I was 40. Before that, I was um, in the Royal Navy. So I was a military. Mm -hmm. Um, After university, I joined up and I was trained to hunt Russian submarines in the sort of mid-Atlantic. So I was flying off aircraft carriers, although probably it would be like a little rowing boat compared to the size of your aircraft carriers. But it was we were flying off um, aircraft carriers in seeking helicopters and spent lots of years chasing chasing Russian submarines around. And it was sort of the end of the Cold War. And so... Yeah, it was great fun. Great boys' own stuff, but got married, four kids. A lot of my contemporaries were staying in and perhaps hoping to be captains or admirals or something, but I just had this bug inside me. I just wanted my own business. So I started to take a business course. I thought I might be a bit institutionalized after 19 years of yes, sir, no, sir. And yeah, did a little business course. And all the business concepts just didn't make any sense to me because I didn't have any business. Everyone else in in the tutorials were going back to their own businesses and they could apply it. I was in the military and it just didn't make sense, you know. And so me and my friend thought, shall we buy a business to help us with our homework for this business course we're on? And uh, we opened the local paper. Uh, we were quite keen on it and just hovered our finger and just landed on a fish and chip shop in uh, in a lovely place called Falmouth. I didn't really know it. I didn't know it. Um, it we, could, we were just looking for a business to buy. So it could have been a taxi company. It could have been a hair salon. It could have been a quarry. It could have been anything. But we landed on the fish and chip shop. And so these two naval officers bought this poor fish and chip shop that didn't know what was coming. And we just walked in and uh, there was a lot of fun, but our starting point was absolutely zero. I It was a great location. 
it probably had a choose the French a poor reputation. It had a poor reputation, but it was in a great location. And that sort of ticked all the boxes because that meant that it had lots of potential. And uh, it was hanging over a very picturesque harbour. So surely we couldn't mess this up. Um, But it was two of us. I, I wasn't, it was two of us and I wasn't quite brave enough to do it on my own. So I just picked my best friend and being in a business partnership with your best friend isn't necessarily the best business partner because we didn't really want to upset each other too much. And so, but it gave us the confidence to get started. We then went on a roll and bought a a really nice beach cafe three years later. And so we had two prime sites and that worked quite well. Fish and chips and the beach cafe, we were moving personnel between them depending what the weather was like. But in the end, five years into it, we just realised that we we were really good friends, but we weren't necessarily great business partners. So we we, we had a sort of business divorce. Mm-hmm. Still really good friends, but we just realised that our friendship was holding back the business. So we, we split up the business. He had the beach cafe. I had the fish and chip restaurant. And, yeah, both of us within two years i think both of us had doubled our turnovers we were holding each other back mm-hmm. um, and so i went off on a fish and chip adventure and he stayed down the beach cafe mm-hmm. and that was what well, started 23 years ago so that takes us up to about 18 years ago well why don't you give us a little picture of the fish and chip concept Right. Am uh, I, you know, what it entails, a menu type of thing, hours of operation. How does am, it am I right in thinking that if someone asked you in a bar, what do the Brits eat? Would you that, say fish and chips? That would be the first thing that I think most people would come to would come to most people's mind here in the United States because it's just considered to be a very very British fair, and I and I'm I, I I'm I'm really interested in you answering Chris's question because like it's really on point. But yeah. wow, I would imagine that's a pretty competitive um, competitive concept uh, in a country that is known for fish and chips. <laughs> right. Um, it it was it yes. I mean, there is a a big love of fish and chips by anyone in England, Wales, and Scotland and Ireland, but. The extra advantage when you're actually by the seaside and you get a waft of salt air down your nose, it it makes the desire for fish and chips goes off the Richter scale. It's like, I've got to have fish and chips. So, um, yes, uh, to be in a lovely location hanging over harbour down in in the beautiful area uh, of Cornwall, there was a lot of things going for it. Um, but in the, when I first bought that place, none of the pubs in the area sold food, and there probably were a fifth of the amount of restaurants. So oh. people went went to for a drink, and then they went to a restaurant. These days, everyone sells food, food carts everywhere. It's so much more competitive. Um, and I. Yeah, one one worry of mine is that the youth have been given so many different options: burritos, Mexican food, Italian, every all these every 
type of fusion food and everything. Whereas uh, my generation, it was just when I was brought up, it was either fish and chips, maybe an Indian or a Chinese. And those were the sort of three options on food on a, a Friday night, as opposed to the multitude of options that people have these days. But yeah, we are in Cornwall. We're right by the seaside. So there is still, it's uh, it's the only business I'd like to be in. It's It does give pleasure. So to answer Chris's questions in terms of, um, we understand what the fair is, but uh, what is the entire menu like? What is the concept like? What are the hours of operation? Right. You had mentioned earlier offline that um, there was some seasonality to it because of you know the the, the region that you're in that is uh, yep. a very touristy. But can you kind of describe besides the fact that you get the salt air and this beautiful coastline to look at? Um, how would you describe the, the 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 concept, the ambience, the hours of service, all those things? Okay, um, I we have a takeaway, so we call it a takeaway in the UK. So quick service mm-hmm. part of it uh, of the restaurant, um, and then we have a, a ninety seater restaurant at the back. Um, Eighty five percent, whatever we put on the menu. Um, 85% of our sales will be people wanting cod and chips with perhaps something to accompany it. Mushy peas is quite a bit popular thing, sort of crushed peas. Uh, They love curry sauce with it uh, and tartar sauce. But basically, people come into our shop for fish and chips. um, And... uh, I hate to say it, the British aren't very brave when it comes to trying different varieties of fish. So over in the continent, um, France and Spain, they just love fish and they'll eat anything that looks totally wacky. They, they just love their fish. So there's a there's a harbour called Newlyn, uh, quite a big harbour just down the road from our restaurant. Uh, and they land 51 different species of fish. And um, as try as I might, I've probably got our customers up to about five or six different fish. But it is it, it's it's a hard game um, once you've got you're into a particular type of fish. So in the south of England, it's cod. Once you get up to the Midlands and up towards Scotland, they prefer haddock up there. But it's cod and haddock are the the two white fish that make up fish and chips. Um, It is, yeah, it's highly seasonal. Um, Probably, uh, let's think. So in August, our takings are probably four times what they are in January. And so at that time in January, we are just finished January, probably got about 25 folks on the books um height of the summer that goes up to 45 maybe working there um okay people don't like fish we've tried breakfast but without much luck people don't really want to eat chips in our country until about midday maybe half past 11 but more likely midday and then they're quite happy to eat them all the way through to maybe nine o'clock at night. So we're not open late. 
Um, it's it's not a massive menu, so um, I don't know if a top chef wouldn't be interested in our in our shop. They you know they would die of boredom in our kitchen. So that's because it is quite a limited menu. One of the challenges of running the team is keep them laughing when the same job is the same dishes over and over again. Um, so, and yeah. I assume it's the same menu all day, or do you do a different lunch and a um, different dinner menu? Right. I will probably come on to it. When I started expanding, I made I made a really big, bad mistake. So I nearly bankrupted my family by getting to my second site without doing any market research. And I spent a lot of money setting up another fish and chip uh, quick service restaurant in a town called Truro. And the trade was only at lunchtime. And in the evenings, trade evaporated. But in the UK, people only, they don't put their hand fully in their pocket at lunchtime. Um Probably they want to spend four pounds, five dollars um, yeah. at the most, just on a, a bit of a snack. Um, whereas in the evening, they'll put their hands further into their pockets and maybe pull out a ten pound note, and so it's like double the double the amount. So I, because I didn't do any market research, I thought, oh, that's nice and busy. It was at lunchtime, but you had to work very hard to make a profit when the average spend was half what it was in the evening. So I could have had a lot easier life if I'd gone to a, a shop that concentrated on the evenings as opposed to, to lunchtime. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not late. I didn't really want to be in the restaurant business with four kids. I just, um, I love the business because it, it's given me freedom, but I, I just didn't want to be, tied to it like some people some friends are just live and breathe their restaurant and they're there day and night um i think because i i got into the business quite late age 40 and because i already had four kids i sort of jealously protected my time with them and i didn't want the business to um totally take over my life so is it fairly systematized in terms of how everything is prepared? Um, uh, I, I've got to imagine that the, the ingredients you're using are pretty fresh. You're right out there on the yeah, coast. Yeah. So there's got to be a, a pretty good supply of fish. And um, what, you know, how systematized is is your restaurant where um, it, things just kind of <laughs> work the way they're supposed to well, or not <laughs> yes um these days yes um 12 15 years ago when i was going to my first attempt to go to two shops it wasn't i didn't i just realized once i'd got to two that there were insufficient systems in place and oof life wasn't much fun because Everyone, they needed me at both sites because these systems weren't in place to the extent they should have been. And I thought I was going to have the easy life and make lots of money. And in fact, I made less profit and I was just running between the two shops continuously day and night. Um, so when 
I got it right, expanding to two sites, which was I, I needed after the, the disaster of my first attempt, I needed about five years to sort of lick my wounds and try and get some cash flow back together again. And I think build my confidence again. But I I I really did um, you know, our hero Rich, Richard Branson and his Virgin group, you know, he he's adamant that you only get success. You have to have some pretty impressive failure in order to to get the success. Very few people just sail into success. So I yeah, I I was quite close to the edge in bringing down my whole family's finances because of a really stupid decision. Going to two sites without systems in place is just... So it, it yeah. sounds like, though, that after that, you created systems and procedures. And if I heard you correctly, you then did step out again, even though the first attempt at expansion may have been disappointing. Yeah. Didn't you say five years later, you stepped out and now you have two stores? Um, yeah, I then went to two. Um, the the second one was actually because my in-laws lived just around the corner and it was coming towards the end of their lives. And I thought it would be really nice if they and their friends went to a, a fish and chip restaurant, just that they, you know, had our surname above the door and everything. And And so that one was destined for failure. But this time, the systems were in there and the wisdom and uh, well, no, sorry, that sounds big headed. I, I was a lot wiser than I was first time round, And uh, thankfully that one's been a great success. Um, and again, in a lovely site, just looking over the ocean. So we have two Cornish fish and chips now. Yes. Uh, operating well and both located by the water so i imagine they're both seasonal as you were yep. saying earlier okay um the yes um the third one came up i i'm sort of a bit annoyed with myself because i think because i've got systems in place compared to some of the the guys and girls that you interview that have just like oof, you know they've just grown massively um i'm just like i'm up to three sites but i'm 23 years in which is steady but i'm not i'm not setting the world alight um but i i think yeah if if i could just for people i i i wasn't ready to sort of get in outside investors i i just i wanted to I prefer to grow slowly, slower, but I, 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 I think there will be equity in the business sold as I get older and more stupid. But at the moment, it's it's about right. But I, I just one thing that I, might resonate with some of your other guys. When I when we bought the first site, it was it was on the market. We could either buy the freehold, which was about half a million pounds or the leasehold was about 115 and we were capable of buying the freehold so we tried to get the freehold and the person that was selling the restaurant decided that 
they didn't want it halfway through the sale. They didn't want to sell the freehold because they'd worked out that it was going to be an index linked old age pension for them. So they backed out of that. And instead of perhaps knuckling down and trying to get them to persuade the, I don't know, give them a brown envelope with a bit of extra cash in outside the sale or anything, I I didn't fight well enough to try and get that freehold. And I think the effect of that has been that, yeah, we've traded okay, but, I mean, I would have paid off the mortgage years ago and now I wouldn't be paying any rent. Plus, I would have an asset that the banks would be really happy to hold to lend me to expand the business. And because I don't, certainly in the UK, the cheapest way of borrowing money to expand is what we call the high street banks. And they're willing to lend you money for a low interest rate, but they need the security of property. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was that it, it's because I was green in the gills. I sh- 23 years ago, I should have fought harder to get the freehold. And I think that would have enabled to get cheaper money to finance, to grow the business, but it didn't happen. So at the moment, two of our sites are leasehold and the third one we bought uh, a couple of years ago, we did manage to get the freehold. And it it's just a nicer feeling paying that off and knowing that, yes. Well, that doesn't sound a lot different than, say, the many small independent operators on this side of the pond. You know, when they're talking about obtaining financing, learning about the real estate market, finding sites, yeah. Many of them have brought that up that, you know, if they could perhaps own the building uh, lease to themselves, then as they're paying themselves rent, they're building equity. Sometimes that works. Many times it doesn't. Most of the people that you uh, may have uh, heard share their story on Corner Booth are growing by leasing um, and not, you know, actually owning the land and building their own buildings. But it's good to do both. But, you know, the one thing that Barry and I've learned all this time is that there's no one way to do it. You guys are out there doing it every day and you're successful more days than you're not. And expansion is not a race. There's no award for how soon or how many. Uh, the only award really is for how good, because that determines how long. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. we've heard that from people that, you know, it's all about finding the right people to operate that sets the tone for growth. Not so right. much how fast can you go. Yeah, I, I I can hear what you're saying. For for me in particular, I did I didn't want to be totally tied up to the business. I, if I wanted to spend more time with the family or think about another business project, I, I wanted time was sort of valuable to me. So when we got to three shops, I sort of created a, a central function that looked after marketing, finance, operations, all the buying, looking after the personnel. I I, I created a a separate company that provides support to the the three shops. So the three shops pay every month to support these five people that assist the three shops. That it's... Having four or five shops would make the other shops more profitable because the contribution, basically the group of people I got could 
operate five units just as well as three. So I, I personally am keen to move on to four or five um, to, to fully utilize the sort of the very capable people that I've formed into a group that will make my, um, the business won't need me so much by creating the sort of central group. I don't know whether that happens, at what stage would restaurant owners in America, how big they'd have to grow before creating a central function. I got the idea from a, a friend who owns 40, four zero uh, fish and chip shops in the Southeast of England, who's, just great, but he's got he's got a central staff of twenty five that look after the the forty outlet. So, yeah, I, I'm probably a little bit top heavy on senior management at the moment. So I do need to to grow to four or five outlets, and then would be it would sort of make more sense financially. I think it is franchising a. Uh... A popular growth model in the uh, UK. Uh, sounds like all of the uh, units are what we would call um, corporate owned. They're owned by the same. They're owned and operated by um, by the company rather than having franchised them. I know there are um, you know American brands that have franchised yeah. units in, in in that part of the country. But for independence, is that is that something that is ever on your radar? Is that you know I will lease the brand and ha- and franchise the concept to someone else uh, uh, using my systems and procedures. Um, I I think it would financially work, but I don't think I'd be so happy. Um, I think the risk of a rogue operator um, causing damage to my brand um, would be quite high. Mm-hmm. Um, and after spending 23 years of sort of building a brand up, so it's, you know, you get the nod, Oh, yeah, nice fish and chips. Mm-hmm. I, I just, yeah, some of the, uh, I, I sort of, before buying the, uh, before buying the f- fish and chip shop, being independent, I did look at, with me and my business partner at the time did look at, I think it was a KFC franchise. We could have got the KFC franchise for the whole of Cornwall. And, you know the figures. The figures look great, but I just didn't think it wasn't for me. Really, I, I just love being an independent operator, and you know, having a shower in the morning and just deciding to do something and put changes in place by lunch. You know, um, I, I would hate to get approved, have to go up to a head office and get approval to do anything slightly different but you, you want control over your own concept yeah one of the things we talk about seasonality and and i want to kind of shift the conversation to that only for this reason we and and chris back me up if if you think i'm correct we do have a lot of uh, readers and and members and listeners who uh, operate restaurants in areas where we would call seasonal I'm living in North Carolina. We've got the Outer Banks. Uh, you know, you have a certain time of year where everybody rushes out there to go to the beach. And then, you know, and then, you know, a lot of places uh, uh, are empty uh, after that seasonal rush. You have ski resorts. You have other places like that. And so you've been operating in this very beautiful seasonal location 
Um, how do you make that work in terms of cash flow, in terms of covering your debt and obligations during slow seasons? Uh, I got to believe you've you've gotten pretty good at that part of restaurant financing. Um, there's been some very hairy winters um, where I haven't been sleeping much <laughs> and just, you know, I don't know, some winters to get through, you know, phoning elderly aunties and instructing her whether she could put a check in the post. And I'm having to tell her how many noughts to put on the end of the check because <laughs> we're just, ah. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I, it is increasingly getting better. But, um, y- yes, Um what have we picked up about running a seasonal business? I, th- I think some mistakes was that I just, I really loved my staff and, and I, it's, it was just in the early days, it was really hard to wind down hours or say goodbye to people. And I, I just wanted to keep them happy, but that that's fine. If you've got a quiet period of a month or two, but when your quiet period is six months of the year, keeping a a larger war- workforce than you do or giving them more hours, um, the sums won't work. I suppose I just had to uh, – ruthless is the wrong word, but it I just had to be it's, – it's fine looking after people, but if you're risking the, the, the future security of the business, then – you're not going to do them any favors at all because you, you're going bust. So I, I think I, it just took a it took a few years to sort of realize the reality of it. But in addition to say seasonal staff, because I can definitely identify with that. We work with that a lot. You're not alone. That's the biggest thing on this side of the water that they face too. You know, really popular ski resorts are always yeah. concerned about that building up for the winter. Yep. But in order to survive, they have to have a lot of seasonal help leave in the summer yep. and vice versa for the beach communities, you know. Uh, yep. But different from that, are you? do you feel like aside from that, it's a little bit easier in that you don't have to make a lot of menu modifications or the type of clientele doesn't change a lot? Um, or are you having to do a lot of work in that area too in the off season? Um, well, I mean, people do live here. Um yeah. But in order to make our businesses work, I suppose we we do charge at the top end of what fish and chips is. Yeah. Um, it's it's really good quality. I think we look after our teams quite well. Um, we pay all our taxes. So funny old thing, we do need to charge a, a decent amount for fish and chips and it, an operator down the road may be cheaper. Um, so, but there are, all the all the shops are in towns where there are people. It's just um, it's the local community is you know it's low income. It's mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a tourist. You know the reality of it is the tourists are bringing money, mm-hmm. and the winter there isn't too much money around. But there are people. So I. We're about to launch a sort of digital loyalty system that was delayed with some techie issues, but I'm I'm really sort of happy on that because it will be a chance to 
give back to our sort of local people that um customers that do keep us going through the winter um we will be giving back to them um and it, it's yeah a very slick system I, I, it looks great and it's launching in about 10 days time or so so i although our prices are higher if people are loyal to us then they will be get getting points to get free food and and so it goes around from there so i, I don't know how loyal how popular loyalty schemes are in quite. north america yeah no quite uh and for many operators they work really well there and so i think that that might be a, a wise decision for you to just to get into well, a yeah. loyalty program i mean I, 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 without sort of i, I want I think it's only fair that the local customers pay less for their fish and chips than the tourists. Um, the tourists are just there on holiday. Uh, the locals are there supporting us all year round. So a loyalty scheme seems to me a good way to do it. I think it's it's going to end up about sort of 8% goes back. Okay. We're, we're following the McDonald's in the UK recently launched a digital loyalty scheme and we've done all the calculations and theirs is very popular and it's about eight percent goes back to the customer um so we're we're sort of copying them why reinvent the wheel so we're we're using their their sort of figures and see how it goes from there is yours digital as well? I mean, that that's where things are going here for all the reasons we understand with technology. Yeah, no, but it, it's very it, slick. Yeah, and and it's because and you know I've even heard things uh, to the effect that uh, uh, men are not really ones who are going to ever, you know, carry cards or clip yeah, coupons. Yeah. God forbid. But um, a digital uh, loyalty program is something everybody can embrace. Yeah, I, I, the whole reason it well, it's to give a little bit back to the locals and mm -hmm. and to hopefully encourage people to that do currently visit us once a month will come and visit us every two weeks instead of every four weeks. And that would be tremendous for our finances through the winter. And I imagine that uh, uh, locals have some influence on where tourists will, will dine because the first place I'm going, first person I'm going to ask when I step yeah, into yeah. town is where do I yeah, get yeah. the best fish and chips? Yeah. No, most definitely. Well, and that kind of gives us a perfect segue to the next question I had, and that was about the use of digital email posts, uh, uh, social media marketing. How do you stay in touch with the locals and how do you market to the visiting tourists? Uh, what kind of marketing programs work there? Right. Well, I, I've invested a little bit of money in marketing. I used to do it myself and just sort of podge posters together in PowerPoint and things like that and do my own menus on PowerPoint in the early days. Um, now, my son, Logan, who's 30-ish, and he's he's very up with marketing, and we've, we have a digital marketer who works part-time for us. So we're, we're beginning to really sort of embrace it, um, and mainly because... I don't know, for years, I've just always looked across to you guys in America and uh, you you discover good ways to do things. And then it, about five years later, it goes across the pond and, oh, that's a good idea. And so, <laughs> so 
I, I love I love reading restaurant owner and doing other just other any source to find out what's happening in North America. Um, so yes, we we've got we 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 built up email lists and I know the Data Protection Act in the UK every year you need to check that they're valid and you know and clean them out and things like this. But I'll sort the biggest fish and chip shop, the first one, Harbour Lights, has over 9,000 active email subscribers that are hanging on for deals and things like that. And I'd, I'd speak to other restaurant owners and they'd be like, how many? 900? No, 9,000. And, uh, you know, our smaller shops are something like three and a half thousand and the latest ones up to about a thousand and a half. But th- these are all active people that are really happy to to get our emails and uh, promotions and news of the restaurants and everything. So I think fish and chips in the UK done right. Well, certainly in the pubs, it's one of the most passionate conversations. Right, what, who does the best fish and chips, and what, what do you like? And how do you like your batter? Do you like it crunchy, or do you, you know, do you like salt and vinegar and things like this? Fish and chips creates a lot of passion. Well, that's good to hear. It's good to hear. Well, first off, that you know that's what you can market as a passion-based project. I realize that means everyone's got opinions. Not all are going to fit your recipe, but it is good that. It's a passion project. It's a top of mind. And I'm so happy to hear that email blasts work. Social media is working. It's a wonderful way to communicate with your guest. Yeah. I, if I could just slip into me else. When when I had my business divorce uh, back in 2005, um, and sort of it was, I could go solo. I, I just... Um, I, I was just deciding what direction to push our marketing. And, and it was, I I went into a school to talk about fish and chips and just a business to my kids, little junior school. Um, and I, it was just, a, I got invited in as a local businessman just to entertain them one rainy Wednesday afternoon or something. And I was talking about fish and chips and, uh, the word sustainability came up and I was just amazed that the young kids were like having lessons on it and finding things out about it. So I just said, what do you, what do you think about sustainability? What, what do you understand by the word sustainable? And I'll, I'll never forget it. This seven or eight year old kid put their hand up. Me, me. So he said, I really enjoy fish and chips. And he said, I want my grandchildren to enjoy fish and chips too. And I was like, poof, I'd like someone to hit me over the head with a big hammer. It was just like, oh, this is a really nice thing. So I then got on the phone and phoned around. And 18 years ago, not many people knew much about sustainability. They weren't really taught a chatting, which was a bit like, oh, have I picked the wrong subject? Or my thought was like, well, this is quite exciting um, that we could be really at the front of the pack. So since then, we've we've just within our industry, I've just always liked to try and think of it, new ways to do things and get messages across. And 
a lot of our marketing has been attached to trying to help the planet. And that's been for the last 18 years. And it's just rolled on from there. We ended up in um, the, the largest, one of the largest national papers is the Times and the Sunday Times is a room read by millions of people. And we ended up in half a page in that, but we just did a marketing stunt where we took our bestseller cod off the menu. I, I'm convinced that the world would, the fish supplies would be safer if people were braver and just didn't hammer to death one particular species, be it Alaskan pollock or North Atlantic cod or tuna or whatever. So I just, I like people to be brave. So I really went simplistic. So I, I just, we had a cod free week. So we took our most popular fish off the menu for a week and did some really nice PR. I got this big cod outfit. It was actually made up in Portland because I don't know why, but it came across from the States and a lovely sort of six, seven foot cod. And a nice picture of the, with a, a big cod pulling a suitcase going into a taxi and all the, the staff waving, waving the cod <laughs> off on its holiday. See you and, next week. Yeah, and it just took off. And, People came in very confused, but they tried other fish and are taking to actually up more than what we were expecting. So that was great. But the the it got picked up nationally by the journalists and they just thought it was amazing. And so, what was the fish that would be fish and chips without the cod? Is it more haddock or what did you use? Well, yeah, no, it, it was haddock um, with Cornish pollocks, really nice. Um okay. Hake, hake is a, 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 there's two varieties of hake. There's North Atlantic hake and South Atlantic. The Northern Atlantic hake is a, a lot uh, chunkier, bigger flakes. Um, so that that's very popular. Um, all the different souls, lemon souls and things like this. So, no, they, they people did get stuck in and it's, it sort of led on from there. And then there were some national awards because we were doing some good stuff for the environment. And everyone just loves talking about fish and chips in the UK. I don't know what the magic, whether it's barbecues in, in America. I don't know. Most of the sort of Facebook reels seem, seem to be people cook, cooking various types of meat. Well, in the UK, it seems to be that just, I'm lucky enough to hit fish and chips where that everyone wants to talk about. You also got into this idea of the restaurant business as being more than just uh, transactional. It, it, it has an impact on society. And um, uh, I, I'm really happy to hear that. Uh, a lot of people over here have leveraged certain causes to bring positive attention to their restaurants. And, uh, and I think it engages your, your, your guests and I, and clearly it's given you some opportunity for publicity. So, um, you know, yeah, I don't kudos. Know if, you, if you, I love the concept. Have you heard the concept of the triple bottom line? So on a, on a profit and loss profit is the last line, but as opposed to just financial profit, if you if if you can look at three different profits, profit to the planet, profit to your local community, 
and financial profit. So in our sort of decision making, I, we try and create a really good triple bottom line as opposed to just focusing on, on show us the money. And it's worked for us. We we do sort of local awards, local hero awards. So we just get nominations once a year from all, all around the town and we run a, an awards evening and, you know, it's get some get some air in, and uh, it's just to say thank you to the local the local heroes in the in the local community. And it took a bit of money to set up, but it's one of those evenings you just go to bed with such a smile on your face, thinking some really nice people have been recognised, and they probably wouldn't have done if. And I, I don't know the fish and chip shop is. I tried even in a sort of town. I just try and tell the gang this is the center of the village you know it's let's create an atmosphere that people come here to hear the local gossip and just you know we can solve people's problems we could do everything i just i just love a restaurant being the the central hub of the village or the town or wherever it is and you know you're talking like someone who's been born and raised in this we barry and i hear that kind of story from time to time where people feel like they look at the restaurant again as more than food and more than service. It's a community bonding experience kind of thing. And you're not just creating recipes, you're creating memories, you're creating an opportunity for community. And these are people that normally were born into the business because they're cooking the way their parents taught them. And they've got a recipe book maybe written by their grandmother. And yet this is coming from a man who chased uh, Russian submarines and always wanted to then owned his own business, but wasn't sure uh, with that old business. I want to go back to where we started because I love that, that you were looking for businesses that might interest you. We didn't know at that point. You could have wound up buying a, a taxi cab or a salon, you said. Yeah. Uh, we're just fortunate that you stumbled into fish and chips because you've done really, really well with it. We hope it continues. Well, I don't, I don't know if you've got any industries. It is so friendly. So I, when, I, when I bought the first fish and chip shop, I walked into a local fish and chip shop in a it not my the same town, one next door, and I said, I'm a complete numpty. I've just bought a fish and chip shop. I know nothing about fish and chips. Will you help me, please? And this guy just he said, Yeah, I remember 15 years ago someone helped me. Yeah, I'd love to help you. And the I by accident I bumped into one of the biggest brains of fish and chips. He'd, we have a competition, best fish and chip shop in the country. And he had won it three or four years previously. And I didn't know this. So this real expert just dedicated. He sat down with for me for weeks and I, he just like, he was very honest with me. Yeah. I didn't want to become an expert though, because that would have tied me to the business. I just needed to know enough. So the wall wasn't pulled over my eyes, mm -hmm. but uh, I didn't want to be everyone's coming for, to me for advice on how to make the best batter or whatever. But it's nice to know that people in the industry help each other. Oh, it is. Yeah, That's no, one of the things that I love most about it. And it seems is, is like it's not just here, but everywhere. Is, is that the same in North America? Is, is there Very much so. I mean, it is, it is a hospital. Yeah, hospitality industry, and that's one of the one, most wonderful things about it. And uh, when I went to the UK a few years ago and, and talked to restaurateurs and talked to restaurant consultants there, um, uh, same spirit, um, 
collegial uh, kindness to strangers. Um, uh, it, it really is uh, something that really gets in your blood. And I, I like to think that, that 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 might be part of your passion for what you do. Well, we've been spending time talking with our new friend, Pete Frazier, Fish and Chips, UK. (laughs) What a story. Um, We're going to have to have you back on. We'd love to talk more and more. I think what we really want to do is go there and go to Cornwall. We do. I want to go to Cornwall. I think Barry and I need to go there, hang out with you and do the show from Cornwall, England. I don't know how soon we can pull that off. but No, I would be totally honored. I, because we we're right down the far southwest. I just anyone that makes it down that far, I try and overdo on the hospitality because I just really appreciate people putting the effort to come down. It's about six hours drive from London, so it's it's quite a hike to get down there. Mm-hmm. But it's well worth it. Come on down. It sounds like it. Well, we will. Thank you so much for today and uh, sharing your story. And I hope all the listeners enjoyed it as much as we did. And to everyone else, we hope that we'll catch up with you real soon on another Corner Booth. Thanks a bunch. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.